Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Wall Street confidence ahead of the 2020 uh, year seems to be increasing. Consumer confidence, not so much. We got to read today that consumer confidence in the U.S. declined for a fourth straight month. The big question in my mind is, are we seeing a sort of reversal where the consumer starts to sort of become less confident and less uh, profligate when it's with its spending while Wall Street gets more excited about stock prices? Chris Rupke, Managing Director and Chief Financial Economist at MUFG Union Bank, joining us now. What do you make? of this, this waning consumer confidence? Yeah, it's interesting because don't forget there's two separate measures. And uh, the Michigan survey of consumer sentiment as opposed to confidence, more or less the same, uh, it's come back quite a bit. So it was down in the dumps in August when the stock market had that turmoil and purchasing managers said manufacturing was in a recession. Uh, That consumer confidence measure has come back and doesn't look as worrisome as the one that came out today. So it's a bit of a, a mixed bag here. Yeah, it's Chris. We also had the, uh, again, the housing data that came in very strong. Um, are you still confident that this consumer can continue to support this economy through 2020? Well, so far, so good. We'll get another look at how many jobs are being created uh, next Friday. So that's really, as long as it's not just what consumers or workers are spending it's also how many new workers are being added each year. And right now, the jobs reports, you know, running about 130000 per month of new jobs, those are going to be new consumers that will spend uh, uh, the economy, will, you know, spend dollars that helps the economy grow. But, yeah, we are, it is interesting, real GDP numbers have come down, the estimates for the fourth quarter, so we'll see how, how that all plays out. So I want to shift gears a little bit to the housing market. We got a couple of better than expected uh, data points out this morning uh, showing that new home sales in the United States posted their best two months in more than 12 years. How much can we draw from that in terms of the broader economic reach? Yeah, people are surprised by this data. It gets revised uh, dramatically sometimes. So the reason we uh, the reason new home sales are so strong uh, today is we had a wicked upward revision to the uh, September data a month ago. In other words, a month ago we thought there was a 701,000 new homes being purchased annual rate. Now it's 738. So the difference is 738 means we reached a 12-year high and we came off modestly uh, so far. I mean, don't forget to put it in historical perspective during the housing bubble years over a decade ago, uh, new home sales were running easily above 1.2 million uh, per year at an annual rate, and now we're back to 738,000. Still, you know, it does uh, show you that you know the consumer confidence can't be that bad off if they're buying the most new homes that they have in roughly 12 years. So, it's hard, you know, it's very mixed data today. I would say. The underlying data is not that bad for the economy. We don't want to question the economic outlook for next year yet. Trade. Chris, it looks like we're making some headway on global trade, maybe a phase one deal. From an economics perspective, what would that mean to you to get such a deal? Uh, That would be good. I mean, there's two different things. There's kind of like the announcement. It's kind of like Fed policy. There's the announcement effect of trade deals, 
which could affect you know stock market uh, levels and investor confidence. And you know the trade war effect on the stock market is nil. I mean, maybe some of that is they're always hopeful for an agreement, but with the S and P 500 closing up 25 percent year to date last night, uh, people aren't worried about the you know the, the these news headlines. But um, yeah, it, it would be big because the way I would approach this is that uh, our next big deadline is December 15th. There, there's potentially we're going to put 15 percent tariffs on the final tranche, 160 billion of goods that consumers like, things like cell phones, laptop computers, video game consoles. So we'll see where that goes. The biggest effect for me as an economist is if the 500 billion roughly imports from China a couple years ago, if those imports all get tariffed at 30%, that would be a hit of almost one percentage point to GDP. So if you're looking for 2% GDP next year, 2020, I'd have to mark it down closer to 1%. Simply if the trade, but you know, we got to go to 30% tariffs across the board and we're not we're not there, and it looks like we're not going to get there. So that would be good news. One of the big challenges over the past year has been deciphering what is simply a global economy that is slowing down on the heels of China's economy decelerating, and what is due to trade. And I think about Hewlett Packard's earnings, for example. We were talking about this with an entree Navasan earlier this morning. He was talking about how capital expenditures, when it comes to the cloud, when it comes to services, uh, have been going down. I mean, do you take something from this that goes beyond just do we get some, you know, prophylactic deal uh, that, that sort of gives a truce and allows people the confidence to go forward? Well, one of the things I'm a little bit worried about is that this slowdown in business investment isn't completely due to China. I mean, China, obviously, the tariffs on some of the imports for manufacturers here isn't great. Uh, equipment has been slowing. But don't forget, we're 12 years, I mean, we're 10 years, over 10 years into an economic expansion, and there still is a business cycle. A lot of this equipment that companies buy is very long lived, so they're not going to come out and buy every single year a bunch of the new equipment. You know, they space it out every three, four, five years. So what if they've already bought the equipment they need given this 10 year expansion? So we're already seeing data like durable goods orders not going up anymore, which tells me that companies have as much equipment as they need right now to meet the current demand for goods and services. So it's not just China, but it, it, it's, complicated. it's complicated. We are kind of in an aging economic expansion where purchases should slow um, naturally. So Chris, just next 30 seconds. Um Given your economic outlook, do you think the Fed, I guess the market's discounting one Fed rate cut maybe in that September meeting, is that consistent with your outlook? Uh, I don't want to talk about rate cuts. <laughs> I, I don't think it does any good at this level. I mean, we're not yet at the level of negative rates like Japan and Europe, which did nothing. I think they've kind of turned the light switch on and off too many times for interest rates, the Federal Reserve and now they've kind of broken their tool. I don't think cutting rates from 1.75% is going to cause any U.S. corporation to go out and spend more on equipment, buy new offices or warehouses. I think um, the days of the Fed running to the, riding to the rescue and cutting rates and boosting growth, uh, it's just not going to happen. I would prefer, with the baby boom generation retiring, that they keep rates where they are, if not move them up in the next couple of years a little bit. 
Chris Rupke, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate your thoughts. Chris Rupke, Managing Director and Chief Financial Economist for MUFG Union Bank, joining us on the phone. check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined by opinion columnist Marcus Ashworth. Uh, Marcus is a columnist covering European markets for Bloomberg Opinion. He joins us from the uh, London radio studio of Bloomberg. So, Marcus, uh, we're getting close to the election. December 12th is the election. What if you could just give us an update on how things are playing out there? Ha! Well, um, it's pretty <laughs> straight- so good, huh? Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward uh, if you want to look at it in the round, which is never easy because there's always a new uh, comment or a lead story of some form. But the polls are pretty certain that the ruling Conservative Party under Boris Johnson will get a commanding majority, uh, which will enable them, therefore, to go ahead and probably before Christmas complete the Brexit withdrawal bill passage, uh, which will enable them to leave the European Union before uh, the end of January and then indeed move forward to doing a trade deal in the transition period, uh, which they think will end before the end of about this time in a year. Now, that's the conventional view. And there's lots of other people out there who would love to see lots of different things. And of course, all all, uh, elections can go wrong and things can change. We have two and a bit weeks to go. And and we certainly saw this time in two years ago, that, that it all went horribly, horribly wrong for the uh, previous Conservative Prime Minister, Theresa May. But this is a much more careful campaign from Boris Johnson. Uh, he's been uh, under wraps, doing everything he should do. The, the manifesto has been understated. Uh, he's, they flushed out the Labour Party very skillfully, I think, to expose himself as this massive... Um, Marxist sort of spend, 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 unbelievable amount of, of plans that they want to, to want to bring, um, which doesn't scare that many people. It would seem, but they, you know, if you look at the polls, it seems the Labour Party have, uh, actually shifted up slightly from a rock bed of, should we say, of twenty five percent up towards thirty, maybe early thirties now. Yeah. So there is still a chance um, of, of of not a Conservative majority, but it's a pretty slim one. So I'm wondering what enthusiasm is in terms of the expected turnout for the December 12th election. Well, you look at two things. Uh, one is so-called voter registration, which everyone's getting very excited about today, which is that three million people have, have signed up to vote. Well, they all is that sarcasm up. from you? I mean, it do you is think, because, yeah, why, because... Why are you being sarcastic about this? Because I've seen this all before so many times, and all the youth, uh, you know, vote, youth quake, which was came around last time, we actually analyze the numbers more of a old not turn up than a youth quake and it's not so much the youth it, it, it's the middle band of sort of perhaps 25 to 45 who have turned substantially more to the left in, in the uk over the last few years and, and I'm, whether they turn up or they just dis, disperse uh is uh the question this time around but that there is a, a definite uh lift in inverted registration is always an excellent thing in any democracy by definition, if you can't command, uh, you know, a decent turnout, then then you don't really have a mandate. So, I think that um, whether these guys turn out, um, as traditionally you find the youth vote doesn't turn out quite so much. If it's a nice rainy day on December twelfth, 
um, then you know we shall see. But there's a lot of good things going on about this campaign. A lot of bad things. I'm sure we we, we saw uh, some some pretty interesting uh, comments from the uh, uh, chief rabbi today. So there's a lot of lot of invector coming this in, into this campaign, which is which is uh, you know making it uh, right. a pretty seminal election, I think. Marcus, I want to turn to a column you published today talking about, all right, Brexit aside, when, if and when Boris Johnson uh, wins this election, how is he going to relate to the Bank of England? Yeah, well, you know, one has to feel for central bankers, not not much really, but, you know, this time around, I mean, uh, I've been pretty harsh on Mark Carney for, for getting involved in the Brexit debate where I think he shouldn't have done. Nonetheless, he's been pretty good at, at modernising the Bank of England, but the economy is evidently going into a bit of a little slump here as is europe as is the rest of the world it's not this is not sort of necessarily but you know a little bit of brexit push behind it um i think first quarter second quarter next year are going to be close to zero i think in the in the uk and that's going to mean does the bank of england have to actually cut interest rates which would be seem counterintuitive after what we're reading is that there's this huge fiscal spend coming from you know if Labour gets in it, it it's caramba. I mean the the the, the lift uplift is ten percent. We're going to quote you. Yeah, well, it is caramba. It, it, it's literally ridiculous, and of course it won't happen. One because they won't get elected. Two, even they get elected in a minority government, the other parties will stop them. But nonetheless, there, there is even on the, the the expected Conservative win, there will be a very big uplift in in fiscal spending. From should we say simply from a two percent of budget deficit ratio to GDP to a 3%. So that's a 50% uplift yeah. on your fiscal rule. That's big numbers, actually, for a, a one-off, um, you know, into a, into a new government, yeah. and that's going to be a big spend. But how does the Bank of England, the central bank, handle that? Yeah. Well, obviously, you think they would not want to raise rates. The trouble is, is that short-term, they may be forced to. Marcus Ashworth, thank you so much. Uh, Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, joining us from London, where those elections are going to be held in short order, uh, December 12th. And uh, we will be abiding by a whole host of rules ahead of that, uh, where there are sort of phased in periods where we can't talk about it. But now we can talk all about it. So have no fear. We're going to go Brexit crazy ahead of this Thanksgiving break. Well, new home sales posted the best two months in more than 12 years, really giving us another data point that the housing market uh, remains quite resilient in the world of extraordinarily low uh, interest rates, mortgage rates. Jeff Taylor, co-founder and managing director for Digital Risk, joins us on the phone. So, Jeff, what do you make of these numbers uh, regarding the U.S. home market? Well, thank you so much for having me, Paul, today. A pleasure to be here. If you look at this entire year, coming into 2019, it was projected to be a $1.6 trillion residential um, mortgage market for this year. We're coming out of the end of the year, we're going to be somewhere around 2.3. So, you know, statement of the obvious, it's been an absolutely incredible uh, year for the housing market, and a lot of it has been driven by the volatility and interest rates, which are down close to over a point. So right now we see extremely strong housing market nationally uh, for new home sales, existing home sales, and expecting that to go into a very strong 2020 also. How monolithic is the U.S. housing market? And I wonder whether the gains that we're seeing are being driven by the Sun Belt and places that have been incredibly popular for tax reasons and weather reasons, and we have not seen the same strength in other places. 
I think you make a very, you make a very good point. I mean, in, in real estate, it's always location, location, location. I think post-tax reform, I still we are starting to see some more significant gains in areas like, like Florida and Texas that people look to to re- relocate. But still in the Northeast, in the Midwest, we're still seeing strong incremental price increase and demand uh, in the marketplace. So on a national level, we have a very, very, uh, very, very strong mortgage market and uh, haven't seen much weakness uh, anywhere at all. The only thing that we are continuing to see sometimes is the supply and demand uh, with the home builders who are actually being able to build you know, the first-time, uh, first-time home buyers uh, in that price point that they're looking for somewhere in that two to $400,000 range. So Jeff, give us a sense of the mortgage market today compared to say, you know, prior to the financial crisis when, uh, you know, it got very easy on the credit side. Where are we today? Is it a healthy market? It is. And so one of the things that we do at Digital Risk is we're the largest quality control provider in the country. So on top of originations, we have that lens. The defect rate, to give you perspective today, is somewhere about a 0.03%. The underwriting standards, the products that are in the marketplace are solid, are extremely solid. So when people talk about, oh, we're going to have a you know, housing crisis potentially in a couple of years, that's not the case at all. This is not a bubble. These are subtle, subtle, uh, solid standards. The regulatory rules that are in place uh, really are, are very focused on making sure that people who qualify for loans are loans that they can't afford and that they can pay for. So we're very, very happy at the quality of the mortgage loans being done nationally. Yeah, that's something a lot of people have talked about uh, that will stave off another crisis. At the same time, there's some pretty fundamental shifts in the way that loans are extended uh, in terms of what you call on online data, social media, et cetera, in order to extend credit. Can you talk a little bit about how that's transforming the real estate market? It's a great point, and I, and I could go a little bit broader. Even the consumer lending, and to your point, the way that, that consumer loans are being made to the, the millennials and Generation Z, it, they're getting really, really creative between I'd call it a combination of a consumer loan um, and a home equity loan if you already have a house, and then the way that they're reaching out uh, in you know through this digital uh, this digital omni channels to be able to get the first time uh, home buyers interested in potentially buying. A house. So, you know, things like uh, the, all the advertising via social media being, uh, that's really driving a lot of people who maybe still be renting and trying to give them a different way of thinking about how they would come into the, uh, how, how they would come into the housing market for the first time if they're current renters. On the flip side, there also has been a lot of advancement made when it comes to digitally pricing homes and moving away from just a human assessor that comes in and and designates a value uh, to your apartment or your house. Can you give us a sense of how much that's getting adopted uh, in in valuation models? It's a great question. So specifically in big cities where you have a lot of comparables, AVMs, automation valuation models, are, are very accurate and can be used a lot by banks and lenders, especially if they're refinancing a house. So let's say that the house maybe was sold uh, a year ago, but the per, uh, interest rates drop a point, so they come back in and do an AVM. That's used quite a bit then. But again, when you get out more um, in the rural areas, a lot of times you still probably need some of that human input to make sure that you're getting the, the right price points that you're lending against because there's not as many comps. So the AVM models really, I think, work well in larger urban areas. But when you get into some of the more rural areas in the country, you still need a combination of the data and technology, but probably having a person put an eyeball, a set of eyeballs to it helps to make sure you have a right price point. So, Jeff, I know there was a narrative out there for a while that millennials and, and Gen Z folks were not buying homes similar to maybe past generations. Is that still the case or is that evolving? 
it's evolving, and we're actually starting to see millennials and Gen Z, which is you know as defined about 24 years old, starting to look to buy much more right now. And so, what's driving that? What's driving it is, you know, they're able to move, um, especially the millennials, are able to move into uh, the suburbs, and so they can actually find a house that they can afford. The difference here, though, is the way the workforces in America are changing. Think about how many of us have the opportunity to work remotely from home. So, if you can work remotely from home, now all of a sudden they're not thinking about that commute like our parents might have, you know, five days a week. If they can work three days remote, now they're saying, okay, I can, I can work from home. I want to go live in the suburbs. I can afford this. And then on top of that, you're seeing a lot of smarter the developers putting together the term called hip, hipservia, where they're putting together these communities in the areas that really kind of make it feel more like it's an urban uh, area. So you've got, you know, walkable restaurants. You've got uh, restaurants that you would want, places you want to go out, yeah. bars, things that you can do in a very, very nice uh, central location. So yeah. that, that's driving people from renting and saying, you know what, we're going to go ahead and we're going to buy. What's old is new again. Hip strip malls. All right, like uh, exactly. this, this is this is this has been a phenomenal, uh, phenomenal conversation. Jeff Taylor, co-founder and managing director at Digital Risk, uh, joining us on the phone. I think the market consensus seems to be that the U.S. and China are inching along towards a trade negotiation, maybe a phase one type of trade deal. Our next guest isn't so sure. Kamal Shri Kumar, president of Shri Kumar Global Strategies, a good friend of the show, joins us on the phone from Santa Monica. Shri, thanks so much for joining us again. I know you've generally been cautious about uh, the, I guess, the progress that's being made here between the U.S. and China. What's your current view? Uh, uh, thank you for having me, Paul. And in terms of views, they haven't changed much at all in terms of the last several months. We have seen these trade talks uh, start and go on from about March, uh, May 2018 onward. So we have been on for more than a year and a half. We have heard several times that progress is being made. We even heard we were imminently completely resolved with the accord. And then we have gone back every time, probably with a Trump tweet or with a, with a different move or different camps within the Trump administration. I don't think this is any different. I think the basic problem is what the United States is demanding of the Chinese, namely in terms of protection of intellectual property rights, the ability to supervise that it is being done and to make sure that forced mergers don't take place that is something it is going to be impossible for the Chinese to concede. So either President Trump declares victory and then comes away with whatever he has, or else does, nothing happens. I think in either case, we are left with no complete accord before the uh, November 2020 elections. Okay, so that's uh, what a lot of people are actually saying, that we're heading into 2020 with the best case scenario, a removal or a lack of implementation of the December tariffs that would hit some of the consumer products in the United States uh, more extremely, and just sort of a sense that we're on hold here. Given that backdrop, let's make that assumption. What does that mean in terms of the effect on growth? Is it just sort of all systems go, everything's set to rally in 2020? Uh, given that, Lisa, then as far as uh, the U.S. reaction to it is concerned, though the equity markets, which went up in anticipation of something being reached, once it is clear that there will be nothing for another year 
they back off because the um, discounting of the trade accord is one part of the equity run-up. Second thing, the uncertainty for capital spending in the United States, which has affected capital spending in recent quarters, is not going to go away, especially with the trade uncertainty continuing. Third, we are finding out that global trade has, tro- uh, has slowed significantly based on numbers which were released in the last couple of days. And that, too, suggests to me that is going to go hand in hand with slower global growth. And so uh, my expectation still continues to be, Lisa, that we go into a recession starting about the middle of 2020 in the United States and global growth being significantly slower than in the past. So, Sri, the Hong Kong situation is making it presumably much more difficult on the trade front, even though, uh, you know, there's talk that maybe they're trying to keep separate parallel paths there. How do you think the two are intertwined? The two are very intertwined. Whatever they say, whatever the two sides may come out and say, I don't think they can keep them apart. And the reason is, let's assume that we have uh, some form of a tentative trade accord in the next few days. And then the Hong Kong protests continue. And the Chinese forces in turn are sent across the water into Hong Kong from the mainland in order to put down the demonstration. Then all bets are off. Hong Kong loses its special trade privileges, according to U.S. Congress determination, in the next 10 days, in fact, only a week left, for the president to decide whether he's going to sign off on the Hong Kong support bill, which passed unanimously in the U.S. Senate and with only one dissent in the U.S. House. If he does not do anything, it becomes law at the passage of 10 days, and that's not going to please the Chinese. All putting it all together, even if you announce an accord, it doesn't get implemented, or there, is, there are a few tweets essentially backing off from the accord after that. So I think they are very closely intertwined, and I see no easy resolution to the Hong Kong situation. You cannot let the protests continue indefinitely because that in turn gives a signal to minority groups on the mainland that it's okay to do so. On the other hand, if it is put down violently, that wouldn't go well with the U.S. Congress. Even if President Trump may tolerate it, right. U.S. Congress is not going to. So you have growing unrest in Hong Kong and the questions about uh, what the international response is going to be in terms of toward Beijing, those tensions rising. U.S.-China not getting necessarily closer to any kind of real trade deal. The idea of that actually solidifying seems somewhat more remote now than it did, say, uh, 12 or 18 months ago. So buy stocks? Uh, buy <laughs> stocks in the setup? No, I would say this is this is not a good scenario well, for, for for buying stocks at all. Right. Well, so that's that's actually I mean that that's counterintuitive, and the reason why I said that is because everyone who comes on says, well, they're bearish, uh, they're they're bullish on risk heading into the first half of 2020. Uh, I'm not bullish on risk okay. moving into 2020. I see the fourth quarter. We have already seen. The Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta looking for something like a half a percent growth. This is much slower than earlier quarters. We are go- as we, the, today, we found out that the U.S. consumer confidence number is down for the fourth month in a row. You're going to go into 2020. And if, Elisa, on top of all this, you're going to add trade uncertainty. I don't see how risk assets are benefiting. Lastly, look at the signal from the U.S. Treasury market in the last couple of days. Even as the equities have rallied, 
Treasury yields have come down. And if you look back at past recessions, particularly the 2007-2009 recession, the bond market was a very accurate predictor of the recession to come, and the equities were rallying eight months into the recession. So you have to see which signal you're going to take. It is possible that equity investors will still hold on in the first part of 2020, in which case I think disappointment will come more like mid to late 2020. Kumal Sri Kumar, thank you so much for being with us uh, of Sri Kumar Global Strategies, uh, president of the company. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.